Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a global law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We also connect domestic and international law firms for international legal issues. At ALR PRA, we help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are law firm public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Now, on today's show, I will introduce our guest and then move forward with a disclaimer, and then we'll be on our way. First, we have Rala Klepek, who is a family law attorney, child's representative, guardian ad litem, and child custody evaluator. She has a private practice, Rala Klepek & Associates, in Chicago, Illinois. Rala earned a B.S., M.S., and Ph.D. in child development from Northwestern University and her Juris Doctor from the John Marshall Law School. Rala is an acclaimed speaker on children's issues and the promotional materials for today site if you find those on our Facebook page have links to hers as well as the other guests LinkedIn profiles our next guest is Terry Palmer she is a psychotherapist with a private practice in Naperville Illinois Terry earned a master's in psychology from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology and she is a licensed professional counselor Terry regularly presents on the effects of domestic violence on children and families as well as the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder Malini Bayana is our third panelist today. She is a family law attorney experienced in international child custody and abduction issues. She has a private practice based in Schaumburg, Illinois, and Malini earned her Bachelor's in Arts from, in Psychology from the University of Illinois at Chicago and her JD from IIT Chicago-Kent College of Law. Now, during the show, we do welcome our callers' questions either by email directly at nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com with Law Talk Radio in the subject line, or please dial into the show by calling 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732, option 1 to be placed in queue. Now, when calling in, please be kind and mute your telephone while you're waiting in line to make a comment so that we can avoid background noise. By way of disclaimer, this is a general information program and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice and results may vary based on your facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. This programming is politically neutral and objective. Counterpoints to views expressed on our shows are always welcomed. ALRPRA Incorporated does not necessarily endorse the opinions expressed by guests and finally all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Before we get going, we have a message from a sponsor. We want to let you know that the international software and technology law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, presented their next software licensing webinar on February 15, 2011. That actually is today. Negotiating software licenses is a complicated process that takes knowledge and skill. Changing technology and new methods for software development and delivery have changed the game. The consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. This webinar will focus on understanding software licenses, their legal background, and how to maximize your rights while minimizing your risks during the negotiation process. 
For more information about Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, please visit www.mshtechlaw.com. And if you would like a link to the webinar that broadcast this morning, there will be a link available on the law firm's blog under the Publications tab. Additionally, as ALRPRA promoted this event, you can get more information from me directly, and my email is nick, N-I-C-K, at ALRPRA.com. Thank you for passing along this information. I apologize for the ringing phone. I forgot to earlier. Um, going forward with our, our outline for today, um, again, the subject matter is international and domestic relations issues, including child custody disputes, jurisdictional challenges, treaty concerns, abduction, criminal liability, and government corruption. These are very general topics, um, not to go too far in depth into any one of those. More focused today on some of the mental health impacts. We're going to talk about the risk to children falling victim to the impacts of international custody disputes, and the risk of, regarding abduction is also great. So, uh, as we go through with our legal and mental health professionals today, we want to consider all the effects of prolonged separation from family, friend, and a child's primary home environment. We plan to highlight several mental health concerns and legal challenges. So, as we get going today, and again, I apologize for the ringing telephone uh, in the background, um, we want to start with Terry. Terry, if uh, you could introduce yourself, say hello, and, and give us sort of a roadmap from the a academic on how we should start approaching uh, several of these topics. Hi, Nick. I I am Terry Palmer. I am a therapist that has worked with trauma um, for about the past seven or eight years. And um, when a child is exposed to any kind of for, form of trauma, and it could be anything, you know, from like car accidents to losing a parent to um, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional. Um, it impacts them generally for the rest of their life. Um, we're, we're talking specifically today about um, child abduction, and so one of the traumas involved in this is, um, like I said, the loss of a parent. And um, generally, each parent plays a very important role in the child's life, and and the child makes connections, um, what we call attachments, to each of the parents, and to have that uh, disrupted is very um, disorganizing to the child, and it affects their ability to continue their natural development. It affects their ability for um, it, generally lifetime, unless they do a lot of healing work, um, to form relationships with others, uh, a sense of their own self and who they are, their self-esteem. It can affect their ability to um, tolerate and regulate their own emotions. It affects pretty much every aspect of their life. Um, does that make sense? It does, and one of the concerns is 
approaching the situation from the right academic background and, the, and, and seeking the right counseling. Could you tell people a little bit about some of the uh, decision-making uh, processes they should go through while choosing a mental health professional to help them identify some risks and help in working with the situation with a, an abduction situation or anything that is affecting the children from uh, international child custody problems? Sure. Um, basically, um, as far as trauma goes, there are risk factors and um, protective factors in whether a person, whether it's a child or an adult, but we're, here we're talking about children. So um, protective factors or risk factors in whether they develop um, post-traumatic stress disorder, also called PTSD. Um, some of the protective factors are um, having strong um, relationships with their family, um, specifically with the caregivers and the, um, the parents, um, having um, ability to talk about what's going on, having their feelings mirrored back to them and validated. Those are all protective factors, helping the child make sense and make meaning of what the child's going through, and also um, just having a sense of safety in the world before the trauma happens. Those are all protective factors. Some risk factors are um it, it depends on their age did they have good development growing up um up to the point where they're at right now um let me see what else um do they do they have people to turn to who they can trust do they have that ongoing relationship with their parents um those are all things that can make um you either help them through the difficult situation or make it much worse. When we're talking about abduction and parental alienation, uh, they get confused. They don't know. Um, they may be told one truth, but they experience a different. They have a different experience. So there's no way to really make sense of what they're going through. There's um, no way to trust the people who have been in their life. Um, it, it just gets very confusing. They can um, it can stunt their development. Um, I'm not sure if I Carrie, answered. Yes. May I uh, jump in here? This is Melanie sure. Bayana. I'm fascinated by everything you're saying. I wanted to ask you to clarify, now you talked about protective factors versus risk factors, and my question is, if a child then has been in the care of a particular parent, whether it's mother or father, for X number of years, and, and I would love Rala to jump in here too to talk about child development issues, right now, as, as both of you know, um, I've been on Law Talk Radio several, on several occasions talking about international child abduction issues because I am currently um, trying to get my son back from India, and I've been uh, fighting this battle for 16 months. And 
since October 2009. So the question is, since that has occurred, many parents across the United States have called me about their own situations because they've heard about my case. There is a man on the East Coast, and he has actually um, been featured on the show before. His name is Rex Arul. His three-year-old daughter was taken from him, um, I think, about six months ago, and he's been trying to get her back from India. There is another gentleman from Texas whose child was taken from him when he was only one year old. It's a boy. Uh, he's trying to get his son back. And then there's there's a third gentleman that I was just connected with uh, from the West Coast in California. Uh, his child was taken when he was seven and has been there for two and a half years. So, And these are all children, again, of different ages. My son uh, was eight and a half when he was taken. He actually, uh, tomorrow is his 10th birthday. And um, all of these children had regular, consistent relationships with the what the U.S. State Department would call the left-behind parent. So my, my question to you is, can you expound on, um, again, the, the trauma of the separation and being ripped and torn from a primary caretaker to a foreign land where, you know, they might experience culture shock, um, and, and as Nick was saying, maybe even when enrolled in school, entirely different uh, curriculums. For example, in India, it, it's, it's the metric system or... Um, uh, you know, wholly different type of of approach to academics potentially, and and then the second question I had is, oftentimes the abducting parent will make it difficult, if not impossible, for the child to have a regular contact and communication, whether it's telephone contact or allowing for visitation, um, delaying things in the courts, not agreeing to petitions filed for visitation so they can at least see their parent, even if it's just sporadically. So if you can talk to those things, uh, talk about those issues. And then, Rala, we'd love if you could jump in from your child development um, background as to the various age groups that I've talked about, you know, a one-year-old versus a three-year-old versus a a 10-year-old. I also recently met a journalist who told me she was taken by her her father, again, under the same pretext, most of these cases is, let's go there for a visit. I'm going there for a visit, and then the children are never brought back. And she was taken, I think, as a teenager and was, was ripped from her mother for two years. And, and to this day, um, she's my age, it may be a little bit younger, uh, 30s or so. I, I, we, I can sense the trauma because when I was talking about my situation, she she talked about that. Mm-hmm. And before we get to the answers on those, we're going to pause for a quick break. Did everyone understand the questions? Yes, yes and I'm ready to okay. jump in. My mouth was open, but I will keep it closed <laughs> until the break is over. And this is all where right, I'll all right. back. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. So we are, anyone who's just tuning in, thank you for your attention. You are listening to ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. Our first commercial sponsor today is the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Your business may be exposed to liability if your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. 
Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. The law office of Nancy K. Ducharme is there to help you with your advertising copy review. Get in touch with Nancy today by visiting nkdlaw.com. Our second um, message comes from uh, sponsor Mary Erlane. Mary Erlane works to help professionals who learn the skill of connecting the dots and removing barriers. On March 15, 2011, from 8 to 9.30 a.m., Mary will conduct a hands-on Leadership for Women and Rainmakers in Leaders in Business. This event will be held in large boardroom at ALRPRA's downtown location at 35 East Wacker Drive here in Chicago, and ALRPRA is sponsoring your registration fees, making this a free event. Come by and enjoy a light breakfast and enjoy this pragmatic and acclaimed executive leadership workshop. Space is limited, so please register today by emailing nick at alrpra.com with women rainmakers and business leaders in the subject line if you want to reserve your complimentary seat at this workshop. ALRPRA, Inc. is a Chambers Business Suites tenant, and we thank Chambers for co-sponsoring this event. Now back to our programming. We again encourage our listeners to call in with any questions by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the queue. Again, questions or comments are also welcome through email or through our contact us page at ALRPRA.com. Now back to our programming. Uh, Attorney Melanie Bayana presented some uh, unique questions for our mental health and family law uh, experts on the show today, so let's get their responses. Go ahead. Well, my mouth is open again, and I'd like to jump in first, if I may, uh, and this is Rolla Klepek. Um, uh, first of all, let me say that I think this is exactly where mental health issues interface with the cold reality of law. I like to say that mental health professionals are optimists, and they believe given enough time and the right professional help, everything can get better, and I certainly agree with that. Unfortunately, I don't think that is the philosophy uh, nor the uh, uh, goal of law. Law is sort of a finality kind of thing. Uh, Law and courts like to make decisions that bring finality to a problem, to a conflict, and that finality is not intended to solve a problem, but to simply end it in the way that the law ends things, with an edict, a judgment, a money judgment, something of that nature. So getting a divorce does not solve a problem. It just ends a bad relationship legally. The problems go on, Uh, and many times it creates problems. And if we can kind of forensically interface mental health issues with the law, we see where many of the conflicts and problems come into play. I happen to teach a course uh, in a law school in Chicago, and I think it's, it's pr- probably one of the few around that is about children and the law, and it's every place in the law where children interface. And the very first thing I teach my students, many of whom are getting master's degrees and are already lawyers, is something about childhood development. And now I want to dispel one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that I've heard Uh, for the 43 years of my practice, yes, you heard that number right, and that is that children are adaptable. They're not, okay? There's nothing adaptable about a child, Uh, and the reason for that is as follows. First of all, uh, 
I, I think we tend to think of children uh, as some sort of chattel. It's a property right. That's why we fight over it, okay? Uh, you don't, even King Solomon knew that a child couldn't be divided and that the parent who loved the child the most was the one that didn't tug at its arm. And therefore, the wise King Solomon gave that child to the mother who didn't grab the child in the middle of the circle and pull it, pull at it, as we are told in biblical lore. Uh, at any rate, uh, from the time of birth to certain ages, whether it's five, six, seven years old, uh, the, the development of a child is, is really one of attachment uh, to the immediate people in the child's life and a, a, a self-concept, learning who the child is. If you watch a baby, you watch them touch their nose, touch their toes, touch this, touch that, touch everything around. They're learning their environment. Now, I am a firm believer that you can have an absolutely normal child, for example, in perhaps a non-traditional relationship uh, where uh, a single mother decides she wants to have a child. There is no, no uh, uh, father in the household raising the child. If that's how the child is raised in, in the first four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years of the child's life, there is no father. The child isn't going to miss something it didn't have. It may miss it when it goes to somebody else's house and sees that they have a father. But, you know, those children find ways of attaching themselves to uncles, to friends of moms, what have you. The real problem occurs when a child like Milani's child is raised in a house with a mother and a father. They go through a divorce. The court awards custody to one of the parents, and in this, in this case, the residential custody was awarded to the mother. The child is raised in that household for, what is it, eight years or so, eight and a half years, and suddenly that child is thrust not only from the parent of primary and ongoing and daily attachment, but thrust from a culture and environment that is the stability uh, of its life and, and the learning process that formulates the awareness that child has for himself or herself. So in a case like Milani's, even though she is of uh, Indian uh, culture and background and the child was taken to India, it's kind of like saying, you know, if you were born in Sicily or in Rome and you're brought here uh, when you're seven or eight years old, that's okay, we'll put you in an Italian neighborhood and everything will be the same. Well, it simply isn't. And, and so when somebody grabs a child away from the parent of attachment, there is a sense of loss. It's almost like a death. It, it, it isn't the same as if that child had never been attached to that parent and is now living with a parent that it was not primarily attached to, and especially if it happens to be, as often happens in, happens in abduction cases, with a parent who isn't really going to be primary parenting. Because in many cases, if a father abducts, the child is raised by a grandmother or maybe a second wife, and so the child has a double loss. It has the loss of, of, its, of its home, of its residence, of its culture, of its peer group, of its schools, of its language, of its person of attachment, and it's being raised by an absolute stranger. Uh, and, and once you lose a relation, 
Prala, if I can jump in right there, um, you, you hit on one interesting point, and I will I will talk to you a little bit about the Indian culture. In fact, in the three-year-old's case, um, and I believe the father's on the line if he wants to jump in and, and comment on this, uh, mother took the child, and mother is a very prominent attorney in South India who has uh, really nannies, drivers, caretakers, um, caring for the child while she's pursuing her professional uh, aspirations and in India in general, uh, the, the higher the class you have, you are the the more affluent you are. It's actually seen as as acceptable, normal, and 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 a status symbol to have others, third party caregivers, take care of your children. Uh, and so, in a culture like India, and I don't, I can't speak to other countries. So I, I think you raise an excellent point, and that is what's happening with my child, uh, as well as Rex Arul's child. But and I can't speak to the other. Um, parents uh, whose children have been abducted, but thank you for making that point, because my son is used to mom, you know, saying his prayers, kissing him, holding his hand, and he goes to bed at night, and then in the morning, mom waking him up and, you know, with hugs and kisses, and now he's waking up to alarm clocks and putting himself down by himself and um, not really have dad involved because he's traveling so much, and even, even when he is around, it's other people caring for him. Uh, getting back on point, a, ch- a child seeks attachment to a figure that is going to be meaningful in its life. So, you know, I don't happen to, to think that wealthy people who have nannies do a better job of raising their children, even if their nannies have doctorate degrees in childhood development, than a wonderful mother or grandmother living, uh, let's say, in a housing project someplace who is with that child giving it love and, and teaching it all the right things and, 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 and giving it structure in its life. Childhood is a time of structure. Child, children need consistency. If, 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 when, when you abduct a child, when you change environments, even if you change schools because your, your parents are forced to move to another state, these are all traumas to children. Now, children can adjust to these traumas if they have people in place in their lives. Uh, if, if, if the mother and the father and, and the family move together, you take the, the basic structure with you, the building blocks of a childhood. If, if, if a child has a happy childhood without a sense of loss, with consistency during the early years of childhood development, what that child learns is what all of us know as adults, which is that happiness doesn't last forever, and neither does sadness. But if we've had a happy, well-balanced, structured, safe life, doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, if it's safe and if you feel secure and you feel loved, that child can adjust then to anything because as we grow older, we learn how to deal with changes because we have consistency, we have a good foundation. If there is no foundation, then what do we revert to as the building blocks for the decisions that we make emotionally and intellectually in life? So early childhood trauma lasts a lifetime, whereas trauma in, 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 in later times or teenage times or in adulthood, we adjust to these things and we know that we have options because we can revert back to a happier, more safe, secure period, and we can try to emulate that for ourselves. Adopt, adoption, abduction is probably the worst thing that can happen to a child. What a sense of loss. At least with death, you know it's never coming back. 
With abduction, it's the longing for something you may never see that you can't get. So it's constant. You ruminate over it, and I've seen this happen with children. Now, I just want to briefly address, so I want to let somebody else talk, the concept of, of uh, alienation. I don't think that abduction can be considered as the same as alienation. Uh, I, I think a better understanding of, of parental alienation is that the parent who's doing the alienating may be doing the aliena alienating, but that doesn't mean a child is alienated. For example, uh, Milani, I don't think your child is alienated. Your child is never going to forget you. Remember, I know your child, okay? Uh, and, and, and that's the pity of it, because in order to have a child be alienated from a parent, the parent that the child is alienated from had to do something to lend to the process. In other words, had to be absent, and I don't mean physically, had to be absent emotionally, uh, had, had to be a kind of indifferent person, uh, had to be a, a non-attached kind of parent so that the alienator can poison the mind of the child and the child will say, oh, yeah, that's right, I see that. But when you take a parent away, a primary parent away from a child, that child is not going to become alienated because it knows what happened, and it just has this terrible sense of longing. In a sense, uh, a child who's abducted might be better off. If it could be alienated, it would suffer less. But the concept of, 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 of being away and missing uh, and being warehoused or, or immersed in a different culture where everything is frightening uh, and, and, and different, and you never feel that you're in command of it because it is so strange to you. And you're always a stranger because it's not your land. It's not your land culturally. It's not your land intellectually. It's not your land emotionally. It's not your land from a family pattern. It's not your family. Uh, this is an ongoing trauma that I think changes a child's personality for life, and it's terribly damaging. That Children do not adapt to that. They simply don't. Adults adapt. Children don't. They, they just immerse themselves in something uh, and, and, and develop emotional scabs of problems that uh, the mental health people can treat for a long time when they become adults. And let me stop for a moment so some people can jump in. Well, I'd like, I'd like to thank you for that comment and um, and thank you for that distinction because I think many of us as parents – you know, alienation versus uh, trauma and the, even the, your comment about adaptability because so much of what we hear, which is frustrating as, quote-unquote, the left-behind parents is, oh, children are resilient, children are resilient, you know, they'll bounce back. Oh, they're doing fine in school. They seem like they're they're okay. And, and I know in, in my case in particular because of the things my son has told me, um, what I've seen when I've had periods of, of parenting time with him in India and, you know, some telephone and Skype contact, I know he's not doing well. He's very traumatized. He's, he's longing to come home to mom, to his motherland, his school, his friends, his family that he had for eight and a half years. So I really appreciate the comments that you're making from your experience and expertise. And I think you both made some excellent points about how um, these experiences in childhood can last a lifetime. Melanie, you mentioned that you met a woman who, um, when you talk to her and she's your age, she's an adult, um, that you can tell that the trauma is still there and that um, people learn to um, make it through life, but that doesn't mean they're not affected and impacted 
by um, these losses. And, and Rala, you said you, you likened it to almost death. And I would say in some ways it is death um, to have the parent you know, you love, and you're attached to, and and they're suddenly gone from your life. Um, I agree. It's it's in some ways worse than death because with death there is no rejection. It's a natural part of life, but this is something forced upon a child, and the child may not have a good understanding of it, and and maybe feeling abandoned and all alone and trying to cope with this new life, which is terribly overwhelming. I think the other thing we have to know is that when that lady, that journalist, grew up, she adapted as an adult. She did not adapt as a child. She learned to cope once she became adult because she had no choice. The time had passed. You cannot change the past. You can only deal with the present. Uh, when, a, when a child is, is abducted, uh, the child has no control over it. And imagine how that child resents it when he or she grows up and remembers what happened and nobody asks the child how he or she felt about what happened. I'm I'm almost positive because I've dealt with enough people that this has happened to and, and they've expressed to me what happens is they resent the parent that took them, so that relationship gets destroyed, and they go seeking the other parent and it becomes a quest for life. Now, sometimes there was a valid reason, like the women that run away from extremely violent men and they do it to protect the child because they feel that the law can't do it. Well, what happens is the child gets a romanticized attitude that the parent they never had a chance to meet or see must have been somebody nice, and I'd like to get to know that parent. So now they're on a quest to find this mystery parent that that is often a kind of no-good kind of character, and they resent the parent that took them away because they made a choice for the child that changed their life and took them away from their school and their friends. And if that doesn't make for a mixed-up childhood, uh, one that doesn't settle into a calm adulthood, I don't know what does. And and I do think that people do too many things without thinking of the consequences to children. Uh, I think many decisions have to be made from the point of view of what's in the best interest of a child, not what is selfishly in the interest of me as their parent. Uh, in the old days, parents used to make sacrifices for children. I think we have a very narcissistic society now, and parents don't do that as much as they used to. And that's the reason why we have a lot of unhappy uh, and problem children nowadays, because that's we don't a very do good the comment. hard work. Yep. Very good comment and very true. And there's a question that, and I think this is a nice point to segue. We're going to pause for a short break, then we'll be back. And the question that I had is this is such a difficult thing on the parents. And if I, anyone listening who has been touched by a situation of this sort, um, the you know the thought of it being worse than a death on a child, that's an incredible burden for a parent to bear. And my question is what are some resources or what can the parents, the left-behind parents do, 
because, um, for lack of a better uh, phraseology, they're the ones really being put through the ringer as well here because the expectation of your child is everything. So it's a very difficult situation for all. So we will be right back with that question. We're going to pause quickly for commercial breaks. For anyone who's just tuning in, you're listening to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. Our first daily legal news of the day, and we always break at halfway through our show to bring you daily legal news, comes from the AmLaw Daily. You can search on Google for the AmLaw Daily of the American Lawyer for uh, your daily news all around the world. Today's article is titled Groundbreaking, Groundbreaking Canadian Class Action versus IMAX is Set for Trial. We've all been to an IMAX theater. Well, there's litigation going on. Posted by Julie Treadman in the AmLaw Daily, text reads in quote, 14 months after a Toronto judge certified the first securities class action under Canada's six-year-old U.S.-style securities law, the case appears headed for trial. On Monday, an Ontario Divisional Court judge issued a decision denying defendant IMAX Corporation permission to appeal the earlier ruling certifying the investor class and allowing the case to proceed. The class action is viewed by many as a key test of the 2005 Ontario Securities Act, which is created by the U.S.-style civil liability for misrepresentations that took effect after the stock market values as reported here. And there's a link to the additional information. Moving on. This is huge, says Stoutsberg, partner at Jay Strasberg, said in an interview with Financial Post on Tuesday, says it went well and was worth the wait. Strasberg's firm is one of two representing IMAX plaintiffs. Depending on the outcome, the IMAX case could clear a path for a number of similar cases percolating through Canada's provincial courts, says A. Dimitri Lazarus, lawyer at Siskinds, who is leading the Ontario plaintiffs along with Sus Stroberg and William Sasso. Among other cases in which class certification is being sought, separate securities suits against Manual Life Corporation and Canadian Solar Incorporated, like IMAX, the two companies are cross-listed on publicly traded exchanges in Canada and the United States. Lazarus represents the lead plaintiffs in both actions. Quote, this decision, he says, referring to the IMAX ruling, should be of significant assistance to plaintiffs in those cases. For more on this story, please refer to the AMLAW Daily for the title Groundbreaking Canadian Class Action versus IMAX Corp Set for Trial. We want to bring you our next commercial update from Jim Thompson and the Get Clients Now program. Are you a solo practitioner or do you work in a small law firm and want to get more clients? If this sounds like you, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His name is Jim Thompson, and his program is called Get Clients Now. He will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a monthly guest on our Law Talk radio program every first Thursday of the month. After retiring from a fulfilling career as a trial lawyer, Jim Thompson now focused his time on helping other attorneys get more clients. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and check out his testimonials on Facebook. You can search Get Clients Now under the search tab. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Let us remind our listeners out there to share our broadcast links in their social networks. Many people do find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We thank you for all your support in sharing our programming. Now back to our guests, and my question uh, before the break was, what are some things that the parents 
uh, left behind parents can do as they're going through this process. A process again, the children are, are highly affected, but these are things that affect the whole family. They're absolutely the things that affect the whole family. It it can cause um, tremendous stress and trauma in the whole entire family. And um, one of the most important things um, for the left-behind parent to do is, in every way possible, remain a, a constant presence in their child's life, whether it's through phone calls, email. Um, Melanie mentioned she uses Skype, um, mailing birthday cards, in whatever way possible, um, let your child know that they're still important and they're still a really um, present member of the family. Um, that helps. Terry, if I, if I could just jump in there, um, sure. just just so you're aware, and I think in these international child custody abduction cases, what happens is that the, the contact is cut off. Um, while there are Skype orders out there, I, it's been over a month, actually several months since I've been able to Skype with my son um, mm-hmm. in a telephone contact. Um, same thing in Rex Rule's case. There's often, because of the time difference, um, you know, the excuses, they have to go to bed, it's too early, oh, we didn't make it. And so there's a three-year-old who constantly wants to talk to and see his, his you know, mm-hmm. see her father. And if, if Rex is on the line, if he could speak to that, and he, he told me a heartbreaking story once when, when his daughter said, uh, Papa, because, again, it's a situation where she's being taken care of by drivers and nannies and, you know, other people rather than mom. She says, Papa, if you come to the airport, I'll tell the driver to come to the airport, and, and you can just come get me and take me home. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Rex is on the line or if, she, if he can speak to that or if he wants to. Um, so so the question I think Nick and I have, and, and for parents, as you said, who know the trauma that, that their children are facing and feeling so helpless, I feel so helpless um, when my son doesn't know when he's going to see me next, if he's going to see me next, desperately wants to talk to me and is actually disciplined with physical restraints and, and abuse when he insists on talking to me. Um, for me, the trauma is great because I can't help my son. And the same thing with Rex. You know, he's feeling extremely helpless. He's halfway across the world. I have somewhat of a luxury where I can pick up. I mean, it's it's putting me deep in debt. I'm a million dollars in debt right now. Um, but I can leave my practice and go see my son when I can get orders. And that's a whole other story. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you could speak to, I think, next question was, what resources, how, how can the parents cope? As, as you mentioned, the post-traumatic stress symptoms for us as well as, I mean, the children obviously are, are experiencing that and they're the greatest casualty because they can't mm-hmm. escape. Um, well, I think you're asking two questions, though. When, when you ask how can a parent cope, uh, I know that intrinsically you're asking how can we solve this problem, and the answer to that is so complicated, and, and it may be that in some, in some instances the problem never gets solved, and, and, and that's just a, a horribly sad uh, uh, reality. But if, if the other side is how, how can the parents cope? Sometimes it's the kind of coping that goes on in, 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 in trying to 
uh, achieve some sort of equilibrium in the misery that you suffer with the sense of loss that you have as a parent, that this is your reality. And, and as you said, Milani, it's, it's expensive, it's frustrating, it intrudes your life all of the time so that it adversely affects you economically, professionally, health-wise. Uh, every aspect of your life is affected by it. And the worst thing that can happen to anybody is to have a problem over which you have no control. Because at least when you think there's an end in sight and there's control, you're willing to suffer and endure for the sacrifice that you must make in order to hopefully achieve an ended result. But in many instances, children are abducted to countries that, that simply disregard Hague Convention standards, uh, and they disappear into areas, as, as happened in your case, of corruption and manipulation and ignoring the law. Uh, and uh, I don't know how you cope with something like that. It's like saying, how do you cope with the, the, the thought that uh, you have a debilitating disease that causes pain and someday you will die from it? You can't cope with it except to endure it and, 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 and do the best that you can and to never give up hope. Uh, and the other side of the coin, as I said, how do you win that kind of a battle? You get lucky and, and you keep fighting and sometimes you win. But these are unanswerable questions in terms of a finality to any kind of answer. That's why they're so tragic. And to me, the, the, the ultimate issue here is the worst kind of control that people seek. This is the deed of a person who loves to have control over somebody else's life because it takes the most precious cargo, a child. A child that is supposed to be shared. The concept of a child is something that was created between two people who at one time loved each other, unless I suppose you got raped. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the context of marriage or relationships, you're, you're sharing a human life and then somebody takes control over that which should never be controlled, another human being, by controlling another human being, the other parent who loves the child. I can think of no greater pathology of sickness and meanness than that. And that's why it's so evil. I would like to see people come together and, and form loud voices speaking out against this so that governments will be more effective in doing something about it. I think that these sort of things are often ignored and are thought of as not being terribly important. And I can't think of anything that's more important. What's more important than family? And, and Rala, thank you, and Terry, also, uh, thank you for your comments. One, one of the things, too, in these international cases, again, is, is the time difference. So people like Rex and myself and the other, again, left-behind parents, they have day jobs, so they're working all day. I have to continue working. I have clients. I have cases, you know, be in court. Um, and then we're not only trying to reach our, our our children, but then we're up at night talking to our lawyers and dealing, you know, with, with our cases at night, and then we, we have to be productive the next day, which all of us are. I think in, in all all of our cases, uh, they're very uh, successful, stable professionals who are who are managing through it all. And again, keeping the children in focus and saying, if we give up, if we break, what's going to happen to our children? We're we're the only chance they have, so we have to keep going and we have to keep fighting um, to to help them get back to where they want to be. And so. Um, and this is where, again, some of the post-traumatic stress comes in, the exhaustion, the sleep deprivation, but but sheer adrenaline keeps you going for the sake of your child. And and I think it's really important that as a parent, 
does whatever he or she can to fight for the child, to have whatever pieces of contact they can have for the child. It's also extremely important for the parent and the child that the parent take the time to take care of themselves, to get enough support to sustain them through this horrific um, fight and experience um, of trying to get, you know, get whatever contact, get their child back. It's really important to take care of yourself for the long, long haul. Very, very true. And that is why we're doing shows like this one. That is why we have done several of these programs to highlight these issues for all of the people out there who need to endure for the long haul because, again, as many of these children uh, subject to these abduction and custody issues are far from the age of majority where they have their own control. And actually, we do have a question I'm going to read to you, then I'm going to pause for a break, and then we will finish up our last segment. The question that was emailed me during the show was, does age play a role in increased vulnerability to parental alienation? In other words, is a uh, four-year-old more susceptible than a 10-year-old, for example? And that is our question that we'll be right back after the break. So for anyone who is tuning in, you're listening to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. At the end of the show, we always bring you law practice management resources. And today, we have messages from ABA Publishing, the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, and of course, ALR PRA Practice Management Services. First, from ABA Publishing, if you go to www.ababooks.org, you'll find the 2010 edition of the Model Rules of Professional Conduct. They'll help you with an up-to-date resource for information on lawyer ethics. The rules vary with some variations, have been adopted in 50 jurisdictions, federal, state, and local courts, and all jurisdictions look to the rules for guidance in resolving lawyer malpractice cases, disciplinary actions, disqualifications, sanctions questions, and much more. So, don't be left in the dark. Obtain the 2010 edition of Model Rules of Professional Conduct. All sorts of titles available at ababooks.org. Secondly, from the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, when you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you will receive up-to-date daily legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published in the Attorneys in Transition site, and I hope that you visit and leave your comment at attorneysintransition.com. From ABA Law, from ABA, sorry, from ALRPRA Practice Management Services, offering consulting, webinar, and hands-on desk reference materials, there are made available for instruction in law firm management, marketing, technology, and finance. These acclaimed service options are great for attorneys in transition entering solo practice. Please visit our school page at ALRPRA.com for more information. Our final commercial for the day it comes from credit damage expert George Finder. Your credit score reputation are valuable assets. If you suffer damage to your credit score, you should consider your damages. Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount on damage to your credit score. George Finder is only one of the experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas such as personal injury, employment law, family law, and general civil litigation. 
By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damage to your credit reputation. The Credit Damage Expert website full of resources is available at www.creditdamageexpert.com. Again, creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. Also, before we continue with our last segment, we want to remind you to share our programming and suggestions for guests on this show. Please visit our Law Talk Radio fan page on Facebook. You can simply search for Law Talk Radio on the Facebook search tab at the top of your homepage from Facebook. We appreciate your comments that drive our programming and our guests. So now back to our program. My question that was emailed during the beginning of the show was, does age play a role in increased vulnerability to parental alienation and all the other uh, issues we're talking about? So a little bit on age, if we could. Uh, I don't think that age plays a significant role. I think that the behavior uh, or lack of behavior of the parent that is being alienated against plays the greatest role. Now, having said that, uh, it has been my experience in talking to thousands of children through the decades uh, in terms of questions of uh, little test questions that I give to children, sometimes in doing evaluations, sometimes as, as their legal representative, to see if they have a preference for one parent or the other that the majority of all children caught in the vise of, uh, of, of a divorce situation do not want to take sides. They have a, a sense of loss over the divorce. They don't want their parents living in two different households, uh, and they just wish everything would remain the same. And they somehow often think they did something to cause this, that the divorce is over them, because often they hear a, an argument concerning something about a child. Uh, it, so, so children do not want to to come do not want to make a decision which parent do I want to live with they they love them both uh except in a situation where there has been alienation now the younger a child the less cognitive that child is in terms of awareness of what's going on in the divorce and if that child has had physical and, and emotional uh and social interaction and attachment with both parents then it's pretty hard to alienate a young child because life is pretty simple with young children uh, age two, shall we say, through seven or eight. By the time you get nine, if you're a high IQ kid, or 10, 11, 12, and by the time they're going through puberty and, and their hormones are raging and they're acting like crazy pre-teenagers and teenagers, it's a lot easier to alienate a child if there's a basis for alienation. So alienation will probably be more stringent the older a child gets, let's say somewhere between 9 and maybe 12 or 13. Probably isn't going to happen very much between 14 and 18 because they're teenagers, they're out of the house, they don't care what's going on, you know, they're leading their own lives and, and they, they're adjusting to the reality of their parents fighting. Uh, and the little ones are wandering around saying, pick me up, mommy, daddy, I love you, and give me a kiss. I hope that answers the question. Hello? I think another thing that you mentioned earlier, Rolla, 
is that foundation and how that foundation right. is built. And and so the child that has more of that foundation is going to have, uh, I won't say an easier time because it's, it's horrific anyway, but a little bit more resources inside themselves um, in terms of um, development, cognitive abilities, and that foundational um, sense of safety and sense of themselves. Um, so I think that's another factor involved as well. Right. Any other questions? Somebody jump in. Hmm. I, I I think we both agree, Rolla, that um, for children and for parents alike, the whole situation is very difficult. It's very horrific. It um the the pain and agony of it um, can last a lifetime. Well, uh, I think th- there is recovery from alienation, and uh, uh, it's it's one of the more positive uh, mental health areas of of, of divorce, uh, where with with a little bit, and I mean a little bit, although it really is a lot more than a little bit, of concerted hard work and the recognition that alienation has gone on. That kind of damage can be repaired, and that's when you know good mental health uh, professionals with an understanding of this are so important to the process. That's right. I, Rella. If I could jump in, um, I have a question about alienation because oftentimes what happens in these cases is that the child, as as both of you have mentioned, um, there's such a strong attachment to the left behind parent. They're resenting the fact that the abducting parent has strip them of their of their primary take care, caretaker, their home, their um, their motherland, their friends, their family, and they they will exhibit then potentially anger, resentment uh, in the household of the abducting parent, and then the accusation becomes that we as the left behind parents are somehow doing the alienating when we're really not. We're trying to keep them supported and say, you know, we we love you, we're fighting for you, we're helping you come home, you know, please please know how much mommy or daddy loves you. And um, so the longing becomes stronger, but it's really just parental love. It's not an attempt to alienate from the abducting parent. And the, the alienation's coming, uh, the alienation of the children from the abducting parent is really because of the actions, attitudes, and behaviors. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to mix up the phrase parental alienation with a parent who is actively alienating by abduction. I, I think we have to think of parental alienation uh, as a kind of a mental health category, uh, and, and I don't even want to call it a syndrome because it, it, it isn't necessarily a syndrome. Uh, but uh, just because we, the alienation is going on doesn't mean that the child has been alienated from the parent. Um, and with respect to, to your comment about anger at at the parent that did the abducting, this is a good time to talk about uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Often it's the reverse. It's it's, as a child gets older and recognizes I'm isolated and I'm stuck with this parent, I can't afford 
to exhibit this anger, especially if they're in a foreign country, a different environment, this is where I am and this is where I'm going to stay and I've got nowhere to go. Uh, and I'd, I'd say especially outside the United States where society is more restrictive than here where children have a lot of freedom and liberty to act out, uh, in other societies they don't necessarily have that much freedom uh, to act out and, and uh, uh, there's greater control thrust upon them by institutions including their own parents. Um, that's where a child can really develop uh, Stockholm Syndrome and realize that, you know, I'm stuck here, I'd, I'd better uh, behave myself and, and do as I'm told and, and express dependency and love or, or I will be severely punished and, and, and all, all I can do is just bear this out till I grow up and I have the freedom to go off and do what I want to. That's an excellent point, Roland, and my son has experienced that, too, because the, the That's what I fear for your son, by the way. Yes, I fear yes, that's what will happen to him, because, I, I, because your, your son is a gentle soul to begin with, and, and, he, and he doesn't have the internal, uh, I don't want to call it strength, because it isn't necessarily a strength, but let's just say he doesn't have the, 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 the uh, it isn't his personality to, to be belligerent and to act out. You know, he's assertive in, in, in a very sweet, kind way. And this is, this is labeled to break his spirit and make him very docile just to survive, and that would be a pity. Well, I've, he's actually, uh, because he has missed Mom so much, he's, he's oftentimes um, insisted on speaking to me. And, again, Good. I have caught him on Skype videotape where he's describing that he has been, you know, severely restrained, pinned down on his bed. Uh, his arm was twisted to the point that it had to be bandaged, and I have this on video camera when he's in. And it was just I had to remain as composed and, you know, as, as loving and, and supportive as possible without breaking down. Inside my heart was breaking. So it, it's like that. And so he, he now, I think, is very fearful of of rebelling or, or insisting and and um and if i can share just one quick story with with each of you to to comment uh, a couple of years ago his father and i had looked at elgin academy to enroll him and as we were touring the school they, they said that they had this exercise where the children um were were in concentration camps so they were they were prisoners of concentration camps in each of the classrooms and they had to figure out a way to escape or, or maybe it was slaves. I'm sorry. Excuse me. It was it was slaves. They were talking about slavery, and so they had to figure out a way to escape from their slave owners. And and apparently the exercise was so impactful that actually some of the children started crying, even though they knew it was a simulated um, exercise. And I can't imagine. You know, here here are children in the school. Uh, that that are crying because they just felt like, oh my God, I cannot escape my slave owner, and and I do know, you know, in in my son's case, and and I believe in in Rex Rule's case, these children are feeling the same way. How do I get back home? How do I, you know, I can't get on a plane by myself. I can't. They're often under tight security, watched all the time. They're not. My son's not allowed to use the cell phone or the computer, um, and and he's being recorded, in fact, in all of in all of our communications. So if either of you could speak to that, and maybe Terry, um, from your mental health background. Well, well, this situation that you described can invoke a sense of learned helplessness. Um, It's very difficult for anybody, including a child, to be in a situation where they have no sense that they can do something about it 
They have no sense of control. And so and to want something so desperately as as their parent who they very much love, um, it, it gives a sense of helplessness and they can end up feeling overwhelmed and as a way of coping just give up and um and learn that they can't do anything about situations it, it can affect them as children but also as an adult in feeling helpless and powerless in different situations you know so- money when 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 the, the child cries because they they had a simulated situation that that isn't necessarily sadness that's that's a beautiful empathetic response it's almost the learning the, the reason for that learning process to sensitize children to empathize with something like that so they're kind of beautiful tears because it comes from a child's soul that you've touched in hopes of teaching that child never to behave like the slave master because your actions have consequences and and that cannot be translated to what somebody experiences when they themselves find themselves in that kind of situation and they cry because those are painful tears of their own experience and their own helplessness and and that's not an empathetic response that's a painful response from frustration and i think you know when you're dealing with children if the situation is beyond their control especially a young child like your son when you have an opportunity to be with him, I think I would counsel him to be strong inside, to maintain within his secret soul a strength and the knowledge that one day this will get better and we will find a solution, but in the meantime to be very quiet and not to rock the boat so that he is not punished, so he will be trusted, so that his life will be easier and freer, so that he isn't always being watched, and and you'll take some of this pain away from him, because there's nothing he can do about it by getting angry, and there's nothing he can do about it by being contrary or speaking out. That will not be helpful, and in fact, it would be counterproductive when the time comes when you can do something, or even if he, if, he, if he gets old enough to a point of where he gets sent off to a camp someplace and he can escape somehow, you know, it's because he's trusted at that point, not because he's constantly watched. So you have a thin line there that you have to walk of what you may want to hear and what you may want to see and what is painful for him and counterproductive to him. So develop his strength exactly- internally. Develop the strength internally that nobody can rob him of his internal freedom, his soul, and the knowledge that he knows you two will be reunited, okay? And he just has to wait the time and maintain his own integrity. And that's exactly what I've done, Rala. And he is so strong in his faith. We're we're Christian and Catholic, and he is is holding on to dear life to Jesus, Mother Mary, all all the angels and saints. And and he's my hero. To be honest with you, I mean how he's coped and, and remain strong. Well, and <laughs> so thank you, Rob. Thank you for the right. comment. All right. Thank you to all of our, our comments and guests. We're going to cut it short here. We're over our time today. But I tell you what, as so many good points here, um, you know, each of which could probably be its own program. And we've had a flood of emails coming in during the show. So I'd like to offline invite you both back, invite all of you back to participate in a follow-up discussion at a, a, a agreeable time. 
because there are many people out there who want this information and who are desperately you know, learning, yearning for the advice and counsel of those in the mental health arena. And I think that this is a really, really good grass. You know, talk about grassroots efforts. That's the one of the main backbones of why we do this programming and you know giving a voice to all sorts of different people from all different backgrounds uh, and letting people talk about and continue these dialogues so I want to we're going to have to cut it short for today but I want to thank you all for being on the show today and I want to thank you for the wonderful job that you do and did in, in, in this program and for the privileges of participating with you I, I second what Rolla said thank you very much Alan, did we have a consensus? 100%. I'm, I'm one of Nick's greatest fans here, and he, he puts on some great programs of, of international importance and, and issues as well as national and local. I thank you all. You are all way too, all too kind. And again, thank you also to all of our listeners out there who sent in some questions. Thank you to those of you who listen to these programs on Law Talk Radio and share them as you're finding them with people on your Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it's the grassroots efforts and continuing a dialogue uh, like this who, that allows people to exchange ideas and um, it helps those. I know that just in doing these shows with international issues, I've had Facebook friend requests coming from all over the globe and i now have uh my friend from morocco uh said hello to me on facebook today and asked if she could be facebook friends with my mother so um as it takes a village uh and i can say that in in growing an organ or, or, organically growing an organization is an experience now organically growing a movement is also an experience and that's what we're doing by bringing all the individuals together here the mental health and family law uh professionals to talk about their experiences and let people know that they're not alone so if you do hear this show and you want to share it with someone else um you know certainly this is a wonderful opportunity before we leave can we get some contact information uh from some of you Nick, uh, I, w- I would be happy to um, assist anyone who wants answers with their questions, so you can feel free to contact me with that. Um, my phone number is 630-207-1993, and again, I have an office in Naperville, so I would be happy to help in any way I can. Uh, this is Rolla Klepek. I'll make it easy. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can uh, uh, reach me by email at custodylaws at c-u-s-t-o-d-y-l-a-w-s at hotmail.com. Uh, and uh, you can uh, uh, reach me uh, through the Chicago uh, phone book. I won't burden you with telephone numbers or addresses. And the easiest way to get my contact information is by visiting my website at www.creativefamilylaw.com. Okay, and I want to take a moment to thank all of our commercial sponsors. Uh, Again, thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Today's sponsors were, number one, Marcus Harris of the technology law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. Number two, we had Nancy Ducharme of the law offices of Nancy K. Ducharme. Third, Mary Erlane of Peak Marketing and Sales and LMI Riverside. Fourth, Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program. Fifth, Credit Dan. 
damage expert, George Finder. Now, tomorrow's show is of, of significant interest. We have Corey Chalmers, who is our guest. Corey is uh, one of the stars of A&D Network's hoarding helpers. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the hoarding behavior and uh, how critical thought is necessary in not in learning about hoarding and not just applying this label to anyone who has uh, more than five. Let's see, I'm looking on my uh, file uh, folder organizer over here and I have many, many client files. I wonder if I am a hoarder. So, you know, all kidding aside, that is what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. There are several individuals out there who have been uh, traumatically impacted by, professionally especially, by being labeled as a hoarder. So do tune in for tomorrow's show. That's going to be a very interesting program. Of course, you can find more information about upcoming broadcasts on ALRPRA.com and the Law Talk Radio section. Now, again, by way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice, and results may vary based on your facts and location. Communication with the attorneys and on our show does not give a basis or rise to an attorney-client relationship. This programming is also politically neutral and objective, and your counterpoints to views expressed on this show are always welcome. ALRPRA Incorporated does not necessarily endorse the opinions expressed by all of our guests. Finally, all callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Now, these Law Talk Radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences together with the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.